So um, hello to Dr. Stephen Hale. Um, Stephen is lecturer at the School of Economics and Public Policy at the University of Adelaide. And we're delighted that you're able to spend a bit of time with us today. Stephen is a modern monetary theory economist, advocates for a voluntary and equitable job guarantee, and is always happy, thankfully, to chat about MMT, post-Keynesian economics and ecological issues. Stephen has recently published Economics for Sustainable Prosperity. He is currently a research scholar at the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. Dr. Stephen Hale, welcome to Scotonomics. Well, thanks for asking me on, William, and thanks, Karen. My first question, we're going to talk about government debt today. So my first question for you is, is government debt a misnomer? And if so, what should we call it? Well, it depends on the government, really, and it depends on the nature of the monetary system. Um, I think I'm talking to you about things that you already know about, really. But when we are thinking about debt, the most important distinction which most people are unaware of is the distinction between a currency issuer and a currency user. And as far as the pound is concerned, it is the UK government in Westminster that is the currency issuer. Um, it spends pounds into the UK monetary system, which at the moment, of course, includes Scotland. Um, some of those pounds are taxed back out of the system again. And for a variety of reasons, it uh, um, covers the gap between what it spends and what it taxes approximately by auctioning um, uh, treasury bonds and also some short-term treasury bills as well. Um, people regard those treasury bonds as debt, but they are not debt in the conventional sense of the term. They're better thought of actually as a form of interest-bearing money. I've also heard someone refer to the government debt as the nation's savings. Is that another way to look at it? Um, the government's debt are the net financial assets of the non-government sector in the monetary system. That doesn't just include the nation, it includes the rest of the world too, if the rest of the world chooses to hold on to save assets um, denominated in, in, in a country's currency. So the pound, for example, is I think the fourth, is that right, the fourth uh, biggest reserve currency in the world. So uh, pounds are held around the world by um, um, financial institutions by private investors and by central banks as part of their foreign exchange reserves. And if you are holding pounds, the safest asset to hold is treasury bonds issued by the currency issue by the UK government, which of course, because it issues the pound, can never run out of pounds. And so there's no default risk associated with holding uh, UK government, government bonds. They are commonly referred to, yes, as government debt. Sometimes people use the misnomer the national debt in the context of uh, the financial liabilities of the of the UK um, government, but they're not debt in the conventional sense of the term. And um, what people regard as the UK government's debt is better thought of as the net money supply in the UK. It's pounds that the currency issuer has spent into the monetary system. They're not taxed back out of the monetary system which are available for everybody else to hold as their savings, yes. Brilliant. So that's like the gen general term of government debt. When we're thinking about Scotland in particular, we hear a lot about Scotland's supposed debt 
and its deficit. But Scotland's actually unable to borrow more than, I think it's around 5 billion a year, which is pretty small considering the size of the Scottish economy. So is Scotland able to run up a deficit? Scotland effectively at the moment, as far as uh, deficit spending is concerned, is basically a local authority. Um, obviously, I don't need, you don't need me to tell you that at the moment Scotland is not an independent country. Um, it doesn't have monetary independence. Uh, it is not a currency issue with the Scottish government. Um, it's uh, uh, as a consequence of, 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 of not being a currency issuer. It is a currency user like, like the local authority in Manchester, just on a bigger scale. Um, and consequently, the Scottish government, if it was free to issue debt um, without being limited by Westminster in terms of the amount of debt which it, which it did issue, would be f- faced with the, the same constraints that any other um, currency user is faced, would be faced with a, a, a possibility of uh, um, default risk and insolvency if they ran up debts that they couldn't repay. Um, the Scottish government needs at the moment to find pounds either um, coming from Westminster or coming from Scottish taxpayers or um, borrowing in the market before it can spend those pounds. Uh, it's not a currency issuer, of course. The UK government is the currency issuer. It does not have to go and find pounds before it spends them. Every pound that the UK government spends is a new pound in the UK monetary system and is then available, you're right, for people to to save. And the UK government historically, like other governments around the world, has auctioned treasury bonds to allow savers to hold uh, interest-bearing pounds. Um, uh, uh, UK government debt plays other roles in the the UK uh, financial system as well but it's not debt in the conventional sense of the term. And the UK government is in a very different position to the position of the Scottish government. And if Scotland becomes an independent country, but continues to use the pound as its currency, then actually Scotland's position will not have changed significantly as far as its uh, fiscal capacity is concerned. It'll still be faced by, with default risks. So, so do you think it would be a good idea or a bad idea if Scotland becomes independent to retain the British pound or go to something like the euro? Um, if Scotland retains the British pound, I will not regard Scotland as being independent. Uh, I also do not think it makes any sense to uh, move out of one form of economic and financial dependency which is what Scotland effectively is at the moment, because by dint of the fact that the population of England is so much bigger than Scotland, what happens in Westminster is determined basically in England and not in Scotland. It would make no sense to um, go into uh, another similar set of circumstances. Scotland would have no influence at all over the euro, just as the Southern European countries have no influence over the euro, the uh, Prime Minister or whatever she would be called in an independent Scotland could ring the uh, um, President of the European Central Bank and the President of the European Central Bank might not even take the call. Um, I 
don't see any point in, in leaving the UK and continuing to use the pound. I also don't see any point in moving away from the use of the pound towards using the euro. I recognise that creates difficulties because as things stand at the moment, if you apply to join the European Union, that involves a commitment at some stage to adopt a single currency. Um, if that's the price of Scotland going into the European Union, it's a price that is too high to pay, in my opinion. That's the type of answer we were after. Um, so I, I had a question from someone recently and um, they were talking about, is it possible for you to run an economy without issuing bonds? Well, I haven't been following the news all that closely in the UK recently, but um, I believe it's the case that over the last year, the Bank of England has been buying um, treasury bonds in the secondary market at about the same rate that the UK government has been issuing, in, issuing them in the primary market. Now, effectively, when you look at balance sheets, in other words, when you look at the final result of what the Treasury has been doing and what the Bank of England has been doing, that is as though the bonds were not issued in the first place. So at the moment, the UK is, is effectively running a fiscal deficit without the issuance of bonds. They're being auctioned um, by, I've forgotten the name of the, <laughs> the, uh, um, uh, the office of the Treasury that does the auctioning now, unfortunately. Uh, they're your equivalent of our Australian Office of Financial Management, the Debt Management Office, that's what it's called in the UK. They're being auctioned by the, Treasury, the, the Debt Management Office and similar bonds are being repurchased um, by the Bank of England, often from the same institutions, from the Gilt Edge market makers. So at the moment, um, uh, Treasury bond uh, issuance in the UK is basically just a way of providing a, a subsidy to gilt edge market makers, to the big financial institutions that are more or less obliged to bid for the Treasury bonds, which are auctioned by the UK government every week. So a country, uh, if Scotland was to become independent and a, a country that was starting up its own new financial system, you would say that, that actually it's not necessary to issue bonds? It's not necessary. Have on the other hand, it's not necessarily. If you don't want to, uh, if you don't want to scare everybody by making too many revolutionary changes, it isn't going to do all that much harm either. Um, you will be aware that if you're trying to um, come up with a, a a rational reason for issuing treasury bonds for auctioning them, then in the days before quantitative easing when the Bank of England would deli deliberately keep the private banks a little bit short of cash, electronic cash, in order to keep control of the official interest rate, then um, uh, fiscal deficits, because they involve the government spending more pounds into the banking system than they're taking out of the banking system in taxation, that um, increased the supply of cash to the banking system. And um, it, under those circumstances, if you don't issue Treasury bonds to mop up that excess cash, then the Bank of England loses control of the interest rate downwards because the banks uh, have an excessive amount of cash. 
and uh, the interest rate that was targeted prior to quantitative easing was the interest rate at which banks lent funds to each other overnight. And if most of the banks have got more cash than they need, then that interest rate falls below the Bank of England's target. So that, that was a good reason under the old system for auctioning treasury bonds. But it was, it was nothing to do with funding the government's fiscal deficit. Instead, it was about interest rate management. There are other reasons why you might want to auction treasury bonds too. You might want to offer fund managers a safe interest-bearing asset that they can hold. And you also might want to use the interest rate, what they call the yield on government debt. So that at the moment in the UK, they issue treasury bonds for up to 50 years in the future as uh, default risk-free interest rates, as benchmark interest rates that other financial assets can be priced against. None of those reasons are anything to do with funding a government deficit. However, the government is the currency issuer, just as they don't need to raise taxes before they spend, just as they can engage in, in, in deficit spending, they don't need to borrow. The UK government does not need to borrow pounds um, uh, before it spends those pounds. Every pound the UK government spends and they are spending pounds every single day is a new pound. That's why people shouldn't talk about money printing. It's nothing to do with money printing. Every single pound the UK government ever spends involves currency issuance. What they then do is they offer big financial institutions the opportunity to take some of that currency that's been spent into the system and convert that currency into nice interest-bearing treasury bonds. Now, coming on to that interest as well, um, I, you know, the, a common thing that you hear people saying is um, um, government debt borrowing is cheap right now. Um, what, I, what I would wonder is then why is that and who controls how cheap borrowing is? Well, the Bank of England does, of course, and they're doing it explicitly at the moment uh, through using quantitative easing in order to uh, set interest rates on the bond market. We're doing that a little bit more honestly in Australia, where the Reserve Bank is, is, is telling everybody what they are doing is they are setting the interest rate on three-year government debt at 0.1% deliberately. In Japan, for five or six years now, the Bank of Japan, remember, in the country which is supposed to have the highest level of government debt in the world, uh, has set the interest rate on 10-year government bonds at zero for the last five years. So um, it gets complicated when you start discussing these issues in a lot of detail. But basically, the central bank, if it chooses to do so, can set the interest rate on on uh, treasury bonds right the way across the yield curve, in other words, on, on the whole of government debt. If they don't choose to do that through using quantitative easing, then the interest rate on treasury bonds reflects what the market expects the official interest rate to be on average over time. So the yield on five-year UK government bonds would normally be influenced by what, market, what the market is forecasting, the Bank of England's official interest rate will be on average over the next five years. So it's, it's still the Bank of England that's setting the interest rate on, on what we call UK government debt. So, so I think for a lot of people, there again, there's very much a, 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 an understanding that the market 
um, controls this. Would you say with that interaction between the Bank of England and the market that actually the Bank of England is, is in control of that? I'd say the Bank of England can allow the market some influence if it chooses to do so. If the Bank of England wants to set the yield to maturity, the interest rate on UK government debt right the way across the whole yield curve, of course they can do that because uh, <laughs> they're not going to run out of pounds. So when it comes to trading on the secondary market, if that's how they choose to do it, they can swamp everybody else. And that's basically what central banks have been doing in the UK, in the Eurozone, in Japan, much of the time in the US, and even recently in Australia and other countries for some years now. So another important point was that you brought up earlier on was the concept of a reserve currency and that the UK pound is the fourth largest reserve currency. Um, how much yeah. how much would that affect Scotland if we were to come out of being uh, in another in the union with a, uh, not having a reserve currency? Uh, not, a, not at all, really. I was just explaining that... Um, the uh, treasury bonds issued by the UK government, you can't really think of as the UK's national savings because a lot of them are held by international investors. Um, it's uh, Scotland can have monetary sovereignty without the Scottish currency being uh, uh, one of the world's big reserve currencies. New Zealand is a full monetary sovereign country. And I don't know what the relative size of the New Zealand economy is to the Scottish economy. It might be a bit bigger. But it's a, it's a small country. It's comparable. People even sound quite similar. <laughs> that a, a lot there's of, a lot of us there. There's a lot of us there. Especially in the Southern Ireland, yes. Um, and Stephen, we, 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 we all know that governments have a debt at the moment. As we said, it's a debt, it's a national debt. Have governments always run up debts? And do they pay them back? Um, not all governments have net debts. Uh, some governments are have been... Uh, sort of forced not to do that. In the case of places like Norway, they've they've run such big trade surpluses because of exporting all that oil. And I know Scotland has had uh, reserves of oil, but Norway's had even bigger reserves of oil and no more uh, people. All that uh, uh, foreign demand coming into Norway in order to limit inflation. In Norway, the government has run uh, trade surpluses over time. Uh, sorry, the government has run uh, uh, budget surpluses over time to drain some demand from the economy. And, and the same thing or a similar thing is true in, uh, in um, some of the Gulf states as well. But apart from countries that run large and persistent trade surpluses, if you are going to hold the economy close to full employment, and you're not going to drive the private sector further and further into debt and eventually end up with a fragile financial system or have a recession because the private sector refuses to go further into debt, but the government isn't prepared to do the deficit spending, then it is essential for the government to run a deficit over time. And most countries' governments have run deficits most of the time across their history. That is true of the UK government. I like to... Uh, have a look at Bank of England data going back to the 18th century. And you can have a look at uh, um, what we call the sectoral balances for the UK, uh, which takes into account the trade balance and whether the private sector has been net saving or net borrowing and whether the government's been net saving or, 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 or um, 
whether net savings is not the right term for the government, whether the government's been running a surplus, draining pounds from the monetary system or running a deficit and putting additional pounds into the monetary system. And if you look at the history of the UK going all the way back to the 18th century, then uh, most of the time the UK government has, has, has been running deficits. That's because the UK private sector nearly all the time has wanted to net save, has wanted to want to run a surplus. There was a period of about 50 years in the 19th century when under Gladstone and Disraeli, the UK government did approximately balance its budget. And really that's where the balanced budget nonsense came from in the UK. Um, the domestic private sector was still running a surplus. How was that possible? The British Empire was running the deficit. For every surplus in the monetary system, there has to be a deficit. If you're not going to have uh, an empire which allows you to run a trade surplus year after year after year, like the UK did in the 19th century, if you're not going to be an economy that persistently runs a trade surplus, which is not something that we recommend countries to try and do in any case, if you're not going to be a Singapore or a, an oil exporter with hardly anyone living in the country, then in order for the private sector to be able to net save, in order for there to be healthy private sector balance sheets, in the case of the UK, the pounds that the private sector needs to save has to come from the currency issue. It has to come from the government, and that involves deficit spending. And, of course, when the government spends more than it taxes and runs a deficit, we say the government is adding to its debt or to the national debt. We really shouldn't use that language we should say the government is increasing the net money supply. And do That's governments right. ever pay? And and do governments ever pay back that debt? Um, as I said, Norway's government doesn't have net debt, but it, ha it has a special set of circumstances. As far as the UK government is concerned, no, it has never um, repaid, not since the 18th century anyway. The whole of the UK's national debt. UK governments have run surpluses. Most of the surpluses in the UK have been in the relatively recent past under Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair. They were not good ideas. They drove the private sector into debt. And in order to encourage the private sector to go further into debt, they deregulated the financial system, particularly the uh, Blair Brown government was guilty of that. And of course, as in other countries like the US, that contributed towards the global financial crisis. And uh, when you have a severe recession like that, the currency issuer, even though it has foolishly been uh, um, pursuing a, a fiscal surplus when it shouldn't have done, done previously, when it's been draining pounds from the monetary system, weakening private balance sheets, forcing the private sector to go further back into debt, when the collapse happens, of course, the currency issuer has to step in and rescue the system. And you can do that if you've got your own currency in a floating exchange rate, if you're a monetary sovereign. If you are Portugal, Spain, Italy, Greece, at the time, the Republic of Ireland, and God forbid, in a future crisis, Scotland in the Eurozone, you can't do that and you pay the price for having given up your monetary sovereignty. Monetary sovereignty is something that should be, I hope, 
uh, if it isn't already, well understood by the SNP and by the other politicians in Scotland. And it's something well, I, Scotland should strive for and they shouldn't give away again. Yeah, well, well, I hope that some of the small uh, things that we're doing on the Scotonomics show is going to help that. Um, yeah. But it's very interesting what you said about the UK never paying back its debt. Because as part of the Sustainable Growth Commission report, which is effectively underpinning the Scottish National Party's economic policy, part of that report said that Scotland should pay back, uh, I think it's around £3 billion each year towards the government debt, the UK government debt. Does that sound like a sensible approach for our government to be, government to be taking? It sounds like... Um, what you'd expect to hear from someone who doesn't understand how monetary systems work. Because as we were saying, the UK, the UK government's debt is not a debt in the conventional sense of the term. The UK government is and has been for centuries the issuer of the UK pound. The UK pound is now a fully fiat currency. The UK government is a monetary sovereign. The sum total of the net financial liabilities of the UK government is better thought of as the net money supply is the supply of pounds for everybody else to hold, which the private sector has not had to borrow into existence because the, the currency issue has spent it in, into existence. Now, these pounds are not the responsibility of a new Scottish government. The new Scottish government is not the currency issuer for the pound. Just as I certainly don't recommend Scotland take the same route as Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia when they left the Soviet Union, uh, because they, as we, as we know, they ended up uh, in the Eurozone. But there is one thing that, that should be learned from um, examples like those countries launching their own currency which is that they did not take on board part of the so-called national debt of the Soviet Union. And Scotland should not do that. And the British government actually, I believe, has quite correctly admitted that UK government debt is not a financial liability of a new Scottish it's, government. It's very interesting that you said that because the Treasury has said that categorically. However, the Sustainable Growth, Growth Commission report still maintains that Scotland should pay back its debt. And just a final question on that, because it's so interesting for our viewers, is that what would happen if Scotland agreed to pay back this debt in pounds? Because that's important as well. It's agreed to pay back it in, in, in British pounds so how would scotland go about earning those pounds to be able to pay back the debt that we've kind of voluntarily taken on board and what impact well, would that have on the scottish economy the scottish government will be taking on board um foreign currency denominated debt and of course um because the pound is foreign currency as far as the government is concerned it, it, it's a it's a currency uh, uh uh user as far as the pound is concerned and Scotland will not have full monetary sovereign. To be a monetary sovereign, you need to issue your own currency and collect taxes in that currency. That currency must be a floating currency. It must not be convertible at a fixed rate into gold or into anything else that you could possibly run out of, like a foreign currency. 
and you must have no significant foreign currency denominated debt. It's crucially important that a newly independent Scotland is not burdened by a significant amount of foreign currency denominated debt because with that comes default risk, with that comes um, a fear then that the Scottish currency might depreciate against the pound and that might make it more difficult to service that debt. Um, it's something which should be avoided. And uh, the so-called solidarity payment, if you're going to make a solidarity payment, then I don't think it's necessary to, but if you want to do it, then by all means negotiate with the rest of the UK and provide the rest of the UK government with non-marketable um, debt securities denominated in Scottish pounds, if you're going to call the currency the pound, and pay them interest denominated in your own currency that you can't run out of. But I don't think it's necessary to do that. And I honestly don't think it would be a big deal for very long with the rest of the UK if uh, if the Scottish government, based on an understanding of modern monetary theory, that basically what we are talking about here is interest-bearing pounds issued on behalf of the UK government by its fiscal agent, the Bank of England, which has never been called the Bank of Scotland. Um, and I think uh, I think it's possible to explain to people that uh, that's part of the rest of the UK's monetary system and Scotland is going to launch its own monetary system. I do think it's not as complicated as people make it out to be to launch well, a new your explanation has been really, really helpful. And, and at the core of this issue is that Scots, being fairly honest, a lot of people think that it's our debt and we've, we've, we've run up. So, of course, we have to pay it back. And I think that kind of takes advantage of the, the, the good that's in Scottish people and, and Scotland as a society, that, that we think we have to pay this back. And I think it's been really helpful for our viewers that you've explained that that's not really the same as something you owe your neighbour or your friends. It's a very different idea of debt, and it's not something that we should be thinking about that we have to repay because it's not the same as a debt that you've run up to someone else. It's completely different. Currency issuers in their own currency don't, in a meaningful sense, have debt at all. So uh, uh, I often say that the Australian government, because it has no significant foreign currency debt, the UK government, I haven't checked the balance sheet of the UK government, but I don't think the UK government has significant foreign currency denominated net debt either. Um, they don't have debt. They issue the currency at, they, for a variety of reasons that I mentioned before. They choose to auction treasury bonds, which people regard as government debt, but they are really a form of interest-bearing currency. Um, it was not essential for the UK government to auction treasury bonds in order to allow the UK government to spend pounds, they issue the pound. Um, and, and the same thing ought to be true in Scotland. Once Scotland is an independent country, then you know if the Scottish government engages in too much spending, 
relative to the taxes that it uses to delete Scottish pounds from the Scottish monetary system, the consequence of that will be inflation. It's never going to be insolvency. And uh, uh, if you are the currency issuer, then those Scottish pounds, which the Scottish government spends into the system and has not yet taxed back out of the system, which people will, um, I suppose, refer to as Scotland's government debt or perhaps even Scotland's uh, national debt. It's not. It, 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 it's just the country's net money supply. That's all it is. Um, so do I think uh, uh, the solidarity payment is a good idea? No, I don't. Uh, you might say that it's Scottish people being honest and nice. I think it's um, being foolish and self-sabotage. Um, there will be transition costs. Uh, mm -hmm. it, uh, it, it's not, uh, uh, as I said, it's not as complicated as people make it out to be. That doesn't mean that there are not uncertainties when it comes to introducing your own currency and loading yourself up with disadvantages that you don't need to load yourself up with um, is, is not helpful. And if, if foolish decisions were ever to fall Scotland into a recession, that wouldn't even help England either. Um, OK, Kieran, have you got any other final questions yeah, for us, a couple of things I wanted to mention as well is uh, that William introduced you as an MMT economist, but of course, all of the economists that we interview start off with, uh, they all have an orthodox education, as does every young person entering the university system just now. So would you say that um, when you started to go out into the world and teach bankers, was that the point where you started to understand government debt more clearly? This I I didn't grasp modern monetary theory in the whole system. I didn't understand how it all worked properly until about 2004 or 2005, when I started to read things that people like Bill Mitchell and Randall Ray and Warren Mosler and Stephanie Kelton were writing. But I think I'm more open to or I was more open to MMT than most orthodox neoclassical economists are um, because I've spent decades teaching finance. I was teaching finance during the 1987 stock market crash. That's how old I am. And that undermines some of my faith in neoclassical economic theory and opened me up to behavioral economics, which at the time was not mainstream. Um, Towards the end of the 1990s, I used to do training courses for the Chartered Institute of Bankers in London. And in those days, uh, people who had got promoted to the top of some of the smaller banks without, uh, without uh, having many qualifications were required to come and do Institute of Bankers courses by, by the Institute. And these guys knew how the system worked. So I would teach them the syllabus as endorsed by the Chartered Institute of Bankers and the replacement, by the way, of the Institute still teaches an economic syllabus, which makes no sense, just as they did then in terms of the way it describes the monetary system gets it wrong. But I, I used to get um, these guys come up to me at the end of the day after a course and say, thanks very much for teaching us. You've helped us pass the exams, I'm sure. But you do know it doesn't work that way, don't you? And I was at the time, 
younger and arrogant and I used I sort of dismissed it at the time didn't really get what they were talking about and it wasn't until my friend Philip Lorne who also lives in Adelaide another MMT economist started talking to him about MMT that eventually something twigged and I thought hang on a minute uh, they were right and I was wrong and what's in virtually every textbook is wrong and what's taught in virtually every university is wrong. Um, and then, of course, we had 2008. And after 2008, I just I, I started admitting it, going around calling myself <laughs> an economist. But uh, I, I try not to be too aggressive with economists who don't understand yet even if they're quite sarcastic and insulting towards us, because I have been there myself and I know how difficult it is to unlearn what you spent so many years struggling to understand. And, and what they understand is a, a, a model which looked at internally based on its logic. There are some flaws with it, but it kind of makes sense. Well, the trouble with social sciences like economics is sometimes uh, statistical evidence anyway, you can explain using eight different models. Uh, it, it, what we do is we say, well, actually, the one that we're going to adopt is the one which is essentially realistic. I often say, if you want to find your way across New Zealand, you have a map of New Zealand. It is a model, but it has a lot of things in common with what it's representing. You don't use a map of Middle Earth from Tolkien to try and find your way. <laughs> that that uh, neoclassical macroeconomics has quite a lot of the map of Middle Earth. So I guess the, the other thing the other thing I maybe wanted to point out as well is for me, I've always viewed government bonds rather as currency that uh, that emits um interest um as as a as a as a savings account because obviously it's in with a currency you can spend it right away but a bond is 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 is, is a bank account that is time limited so you know my, my bank recently sent me some information about buying bonds and i had three choices you know i could go for one year two years three years and they would give different interest rates. Obviously, more interest the longer I was prepared to leave the money in in that bond. So it doesn't exactly fit that because with government bonds, of course, you can sell them on the secondary market. It's very okay. so you can get your cash back whenever you that, like. That gives them the fluidity. Yes. Okay. I see. But that that I guess that's a very specialised market of fluidity. It's not you know for me to just do very quickly. No. Ordinary people don't on the whole, buy government bonds. I mean, you can buy government bonds. They are available in retail amounts. Yes. Um, but uh, they are, generally speaking, held by big financial institutions. Um, and the, the, the gilt-edge market makers, they get various privileges, and in return for those privileges, um, they have the responsibility that they are supposed to quote prices at which they are prepared to, from investors, buy or sell um, uh, the range of treasury bonds that they specialise in uh, over time. And there is a very active secondary market. They buy and sell a lot of them. One of those gilt-edge market makers was once called the Royal Bank of Scotland. It's, of course, now called NatWest. Yes. 
yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that that's that's clarified that point for me. That's great. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Stephen Hill, thank you so much for joining us on the second issue of Scottonomics. And I personally found your insights really, really useful. Um, Kieran, how did you feel about that? That was really informative, Stephen. Thank you so much for coming on to Scottonomics. Well, thanks. Thanks very much for uh, asking me. And I hope before too long that there's an independent Scotland. And I also hope that there's a, a Scottish pound and that the Scottish government is a full monetary sovereign and is taking advantage of that to deliver full employment and a job guarantee and all the things that you want to see. I think we'll both nod along to that, won't we, Kim? Yeah, <laughs> we're working on it. <laughs> bye bye. Thanks very much. Yeah. Bye bye. I know. <laughs> so, is that. Cool?